Welcome back to What's Your Bliss, part of the Anything But Credible Network. My name is Thomas Raglan, and I'm delighted to be coming back to you another week. This week's guest is an innovation consultant, trainer, facilitator, and speaker. It's Ellen Kayen. Ellen, welcome, and what's your bliss? Thank you, Thomas. I'm so happy to be here with you today. I'm excited for you to be here as well. So tell us, what is your bliss? My bliss is about new ideas, creativity, innovation, uh, new things. I always love um, new things. What got you into that? What, was that something that has always struck you as interesting or, or important? Or is that something that's come, a, come along later in life? Uh, well, so I went to business school in France. And then when I got out of business school, I tried to find the most creative work I could do. And so um, I worked in advertising for a few years and worked on new products. And, and um, I, I mean, I work on existing brands, but also new products in brands. And I always love that aspect of it. And then I moved uh, to the U.S. Uh, 27 years ago, and I worked in marketing research for a while, also did some new product work, and then um, started my own business and doing marketing research, got bored, uh, to be honest, after a few years. Um, yeah. I was really good at it, but it was not blissful. Yeah. And, um, and then I went to a conference, a creativity conference called SIPSI, Creative Problem Solving Institute. And I was like, wow, this is my tribe. This is the people I want to be with. This is a discussion I want to have. This is the, the way I want to impact the world. So um, I um, dig a little bit and I heard about a master program and I decided to enroll in a master in creativity and change leadership at Buffalo State. And uh, since then, I've been in that field and I just love it. Yeah, that's amazing. And, uh, you know, I think it's really great that you figured out, you know, hey, I, I don't think this is quite working for me. <laughs> and and we're able to find something that really sparked that joy, really sparked that interest. Um, for you, what does what does being creative mean to you? Uh, for me in, uh, in my work is really actually enabling others to be creative. Sure. And uh, realizing that unfortunately, um, a culture is saying, uh, I've done that test one time, it was my uh, child uh, kindergarten class. And when you ask kindergartner, who is creative, everybody weighs their hand and they're all excited. And then you take a group of adults and you ask the same question. And uh, with a good group, you will have 50% of the people raise their hand because the other one thinks I'm not an artist, therefore I'm not creative. Right. The reality is we are all creative because we are human and we're solving problems all the time. And, uh, you know, and we don't know how to solve it before we start. And so uh, kind of being able to uh, help people and teams kind of understanding that they are creative and there's a power in the creativity and they can be creative in teams and with other and understand their own creative process as well as a creative process as the team is really enjoyable for me. And I feel like I'm, I have, that's my gift to the world is, is enabling that and getting people unstuck. Absolutely. You mentioned that when you ask a group of kindergartners, when you ask a group of, you know, three to six year olds and, and all of that, they're, everyone's going to say that. And they, they just, they see the world differently, right? We've talked a lot on this podcast about that childlike awe and that, yes. that is how they see the world. Yeah. Everything's possible when you're five or six, it's just a what if, and then you just, your imagination come in and, and you can go anywhere and do anything. 
and then you know life and norms and culture comes in and um, a lot of time uh, it gets um, people forget they have that ability to be childlike and, and access possibilities and and you know getting unstuck with their own life in their job in their whatever the situation is what do you think if you had to boil it down what do you think is the root cause of someone losing or losing access i guess to that creativity is it just cynical views coming with growing up i mean what what leads to kind of that that fall from child to adult when you're thinking about accessing that creativity well i think uh, some of it is the education system like the idea that to do a standardized test and there is right and wrong so I'm French yeah. here, so I have a bias because I never did a standard test in my life um, yeah. before I moved to this country. And I think the idea there is a right and a wrong answer, and that's it, and there's two options. I think that's really a uh, diminished world, and I really like to... Uh, and you know, there's a lot of challenges with French education, but in general, even in math, they give you a problem and you have to kind of figure out how to solve it, whether then this is the answer A to B. And what's really interested is how do we think about solving a problem? not really where the answer is. And I think that's, that's part of it. Um, and then there's all the norms, of course, uh, saying this is, this is what you should be doing and you should get great grades and you should behave that way. And, you know, with other and socially, uh, in, academically, and if you don't fit this, then it's really hard. Um, mm. And, you know, people succeed, but it's a challenge because it's not the common norms. It's just, uh, you know, go in the system, the education system, fit in the box, come up with the right answer and get good grades and that's it. Or even the coaching is like, you have to win. It's always about winning, but creativity is not about winning. We can all be creative in what we do and, and it has different ways to do it. And you know, the focus, especially in the US about competitive, competitiveness, like in sports or, or anything, debate, you know, mm -hmm. um, my son, uh, my older son did a love debate. My younger son starting to do debates. And we had this discussion in our family about how a debate in this country was about being right or wrong. And you're fighting mm. against another team and you might have to embrace a perspective that is really against your own belief. Like you have to argue about why, why death penalty is good, even if you don't believe it. I mean, that's kind of like, you know, breaks my heart to think about it. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, I agree, and 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 hearing you kind of rephrase it that way, it's like, what what are we doing? Why why is that the goal here? Right? That's it seems very. It, it seems like the antithesis of having a good dialogue, right? And and the kind of that difference between debate and dialogue. I'm curious if you have thoughts on how individualism versus community versus conformity, I guess, kind of play into that creativity. Well, I do think, because I think, I mean, a lot of my work, I work with team and I think that you are more creative with others because you can really build on each other's ideas and kind of expand your mindset and see different perspective and understand assumptions. <clears throat> and uh, unfortunately, when you focus on individualism, then it's going to be one person is right, the other's wrong. And we emphasize differences and you can see in the political uh, arena these days, it's just really sad because we're not solving to solve problem as a community. Like the fact that global warming is a political issue is still blow sure. my mind because it should be, we all in it together. We only have right. one planet and we should want to solve it together for the best of 
ourselves and our children and future generation. And yet it becomes denying facts so we can make more money right now. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think there's, um, there's been a real, um, they've really transformed what social issues are to everything as a political issue, right? There's, there's not a, a way to be, to have a, a thought on the social good without that being a commentary on your politics. And I think that that's um, a real misstep, like you said, for being able to come together and say, this is for the greater good. And, you know, as, as we work together, there is solutions. Uh, you know. Right. But if we're not willing to work together with a different perspective or different assumption or different backgrounds, then yeah. the solutions are never going to work because it end up a, uh, you know, and end up being a vote in the Senate. Right. Yeah. Switching back to kind of the joy of creativity, how do you help others um, through everything you've you've learned and, and all of your training now and, and, and all of your experience? How do you help others just come unstuck from a creative rut? Um, there's a couple of things uh, that I teach uh, much more. Than, I, I teach much <laughs> more, but there's a couple of principles I think are really powerful. The first one is the concept of dynamic balance and saying in the creative process, there is really two steps and they're both important, but they have to be distinct. And the first one is diverging, looking at options. And when you do that, you have to suspend judgment mm -hmm. and you have to go for quantity and you have to suspend most importantly, your own judgment. I think this thing is silly. This idea is silly. That's not possible. You're never going to work. And then that, that's the first phase, a diverging phase. And then the second phase is converging when you have to, you know, pick, pick which problem is the biggest problem, pick which ideas you want to move forward, pick which type of solution you want to try developing, P uh, pick which test you want to do to see if how your idea is perceived by the outside world. And um, those are both important and they cannot be done at the same time. And so we get stuck when we have a, a thought and say, no, this is an impossible. No, I don't have the money to do that. No, it will take too much time. So just doing that, even if you do it in, in an hour, like 10 minutes for suspending judgment, everything goes. And then the, you know, the other 40 minutes to, to decide that will make a huge difference. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's one of the big thing. And then uh, be open and be aware of our assumptions. Cause a lot of times, we disagree or we don't see things because we have assumption. And if you can uh, make them apparent, I have this exercise I do sometimes with group, it's called the wall of assumption. So what are all the assumptions we have coming up into that challenge? And it can be, you know, when I work at corporate, it can be, we have to make money or it has to be done in six months or uh, it has to work with a factory or whatever it is. And just realize it's only assumption. And then you can decide this is, we have to work with a factory. So that is what it is. But if we were to suspend that assumption, maybe suddenly we can go in a very different area and create very different products. So be aware right. of that is uh, also really powerful because then when it's not a fact, but only an assumption, then you can change it. Yeah, I think uh, what I'm hearing you say is there there may be some absolutes in there, but majority of what you can do and the way that you can do it is up to interpretation, is up to innovation, and you don't have to kind of sit with those assumptions because they are, in fact, not fact. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 
And even if you challenge um, it, it can really make you think about it differently. Even if you end up saying, sure. yeah, we still have to make money for new products. But when right. you start looking about what if we don't have to make money, suddenly there's mm. a different model to do it. Suddenly we can partner with somebody that is going to pay us for it and we don't have to make the money ourselves. Suddenly, so a lot of things can come up, even if we'd say, hey, actually at the end of the day, we need to make money, but just ask what if, what if we yeah. change something? Um, and that's a power of being unstuck. Yeah, there's enough of that. Um, fluidity when you are looking at things to say, maybe, and maybe you can't challenge everything right off the bat. And I think that's what I'm hearing you say is like, once you get into it, you can say, okay, well now we can challenge this a little bit more. We can challenge this assumption. And ultimately maybe we can challenge the, the ultimate assumption, right? Is this really the direction that we need to go? Yes. Yeah. Um, tell us about human centered design and that's its relevance now. Uh, I think it's more relevant than ever because we're all human. Yeah. And uh, so I, I use a lot of design thinking in my work. And one of the principles is being user-centered design. So as we create something new and think about, it could be in our family, it could be you know, in business, it could be you know, for communities. Uh, we have to understand uh, the people that are going to be affected by the change we create. So for me, users is not only the end user, like if you have a product, it's not only the person that buys the product, but everybody that can be influenced and, and changed by what we're creating and is new and by uh, understanding where they come from, understanding their life, their challenges, what they need, what's working and what's not working with them. Then we can really create something new that would be uh, embraced by yeah. the people for which you create the change. So I think it's really important and what's also important is not to do it just at the beginning and at the end of a process. Mm. So, uh, you know, in traditional consumer good, you might talk to a consumer a little at the beginning of it, and then you do everything, you have this perfect product and you talk to them at the end. Not so much because they, mm. the more you can involve them, it's even important in community work, the more you can involve, uh, you know, the stakeholders, the more you will understand where they come from, get their feedback, learn, and then also get their buy-in because I were part of it. Yeah, I think that that to me sounds exactly like we were what we were just talking about too. It's you want to engage in the whole process. You can't just, uh, you know, whether it's the assumption or whether it's it's the involvement, you can't just have that at the beginning and just at the end. You have to have that throughout the process because if you don't, then there are things that are malleable. There are things that um, can can come up and there are pieces that, can make it uh, more rich, more, more full of an experience. Yes. And um, one of the other principles of design thinking is a user-centered part of it. It's a user-centered, but the prototype. Hmm. Uh, and so you can have an idea on paper and it looks great and everybody's excited, but how is it going to look? Because it's going to look for the person that has to experience it. So the idea of doing prototyping early, quickly, and testing it, not to say it's a goal, it's not a goal, but to learn about, uh, I have this new idea for an app and I might not, I won't build the app, but I'll build a PowerPoint that look my homepage and I'm going to have it with three people and say, hey, if, if that's a homepage of the new app, where would you go? What would you want to do? What's missing? And you can learn a lot of things and have spent very little time and money uh, right. before you spend all the engineering time and the wireframing and all the things for an app, for example. So that can be really powerful. And I think um, tend to have a culture in corporate, at least, is that everything has to be perfect. And sure. this is the opposite of it. 
you know, early and messy and cheap is actually a lot, is really valuable. Yeah. Absolutely. And I talk to people all, all the time, like small entrepreneur, and they have this idea and they're like, well, I never did it because it would cost so much. And I'm like, mm. I will challenge you that there's a way to do, to test at least kind of some kind of prototype for your idea with a thousand dollars in three days. Right. And you could have at least get it out there and see if there is traction. And then you could build the next step. And the next step is enough saying, I'll, I only can do it unless I have, if I have $50,000 or whatever. Right. Yeah. There's, like you said, the part of that innovation is how do we, how do we look at this from a different perspective? Like you have this very uh, narrow perspective when you're like, oh, I can't do it because I know that it costs this much, or I know someone who tried to do something similar and it was this much or this much work and I can't do that. But, but what I'm hearing you say is like, there's so many different ways to look at that. And part of what you're doing with folks when you're, when you're working with them is the part of the innovation is not just the, the product itself, it's how do we get there? Yes, it's a journey. And yeah, it's a journey absolutely. that is not uh, linear. Uh, sure. It will be messy. You know, you think you understand a problem really well. You think you have some ideas. You test those ideas like people like, hmm, you know, it's okay. But really, that's not my problem. You might have right. to go back to what's a problem, right? et cetera. So it's really a messy, circular process, not a linear funnel as uh, some, right. some organization want to see it, but it's not the nature of innovation and change. Right. Yeah, Absolutely. I'm wondering if you have um, one or a couple of innovations, innovative thoughts that have gotten you the most excited while you've been doing this work. Um, you know, this um, there is a tool I use, uh, which is called Foresight. And um, this is an instrument that was created um, by the International Center of Study for Studies in Creativity, where I did my master. And I love it because it's both simple and yet uh, when people take it, it's a big understand, better understanding of themselves and their team. And what it does is, uh, is saying that um, we have preferences for different part of a creative process. Mm -hmm. And there is really four stage in a creative process and the preference are parallel to that. The first stage of a creative process is understanding the problem. The second one is coming up with ideas. The third one is developing those ideas. And the fourth one is implementing those ideas. And uh, while we might have skills in all of those areas, we tend to have a natural preference for different part of the process. And so when you work with different people that have different preferences, hmm. and you, uh, especially when you are working to innovate on a product or create change, which is always uncomfortable, often uncomfortable, because we're not sure we'll succeed, then we tend to go to a default mode, which is our preferences. And so uh, if I work with somebody that is very different from me, that might create tension uh, and tension in the team. And so by being aware of your own preferences, as well as your teammate, because you can map your preference as well as a team profile, it really uh, help uh, appreciate the diversity of thinking and how uh, that can really actually bring a better way to solve problems. And then in addition to that, then you can also build skills in area that are not uh, your preferences, or uh, so the team have common tools and common vocabulary so they can work better together um, on this. So I find this uh, really, I mean, it's really exciting every time the, the team does a training like that and this big haha, and they're like, oh, I'm getting it now. I'm getting yeah. why I'm getting along so well with that colleague and why I have friction with that colleague. 
So for example, one of them, um, so I am called an early bird, which means that my preference is clarifying and ideating. And so part of clarifying is asking a lot of questions. If I'm working with somebody that an implementer, so their preference is just to do it. And I'm asking a bunch of questions that that person may become really impatient with me. It's like, okay, well, uh, okay. Can we move on? Can we just, let's do just do it. Yeah. So it's really important to know that we all are bringing something really important and complementary to each other, rather than being annoyed at each other. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love that the, the idea that it, it's it's how do you complement each other, and maybe you don't know right away if you're if, if it's a new team or if it's you know you you don't know how many of these um, you know uh, ideators that you have or also the, all of these doers that you have you you kind of have to it sounds like you kind of have to play around with that and kind of find the perfect match in a way and what it what it sounds like because of that it's it's a very um, there's a lot of variance probably in, in the work that you do. There's a lot, like I, I would imagine that no, no day is the same for you. Yeah. That's what I love. That's what I love yeah. being a consultant is I have different organizations, different teams, different needs. And I, I love to do customized work. I get bored by doing the same thing again and again. <laughs> I am right there with you. Absolutely. Um, I'm wondering if you could, uh, Tell us about what you think, if there was one, what's the biggest, what was the biggest surprise for you getting into this work? Um, you know, it, it's the diversity of uh, the similarity and the diversity. So hmm. we all different and in some way we're similar. And uh, so every time I work with a different team, there's a different culture and you can really see it and feel it. And the hmm. manager, you know, that might be working with his team has a very different impact on the team. Uh, and yet there is something that you see in a lot of organizations, like uh, how much organizations tend to work in silos and how inefficient that right. is. Um, so there's those two aspects and it's just, uh, it's just fascinating. Yeah. How do you help teams get out of that siloed philosophy and that siloed work? Um, so when I do work, I recommend uh, that uh, the team is as diverse as possible in terms of, mm. you know, everything, including yeah. obviously their functions, because that's where the silos usually is, uh, one part of the silo, but diverse. And we know we have research showing that a diversified team, it might be harder to work, because it's harder to work with people that are different, but you actually get more results because you get a breadth of perspective. And, uh, and I feel that's really important. So I would encourage uh, you know, a team to be uh, diversified. If I facilitate a specific project, I would definitely encourage people to say, hey, maybe it's be good to have a couple of people that are not usually in your team, but that can really bring that right. different perspective to the team. Yeah, I really resonate with what you're saying there. And I work at a, a, a university and we see that with our kind of our cross-functional teams. And I would argue that our cross-functional teams often work better than our teams that just sit within a department. And we because we do have that diversity of thought, and we're going towards a common goal that's not necessarily working to the benefit of just one area, right? So there's not there's not these preconceived notions about how we have to go around things. Yes, and it, it's it's also that sometimes team work against each other because they're fighting yeah. for a budget or they're fighting for sure. some resources or something. And so if you put everybody together and get to the higher level, then you avoid this kind of narrow view of things. Yeah, absolutely. 
One of the things that we've been talking about, it, it's become uh, pretty common on the podcast, is talking about failure and talking about how failure is ultimately a, a great learning experience and not something that we should shy away from. Can you talk about um, kind of your thoughts around that, either personally or professionally, what that has meant for you and, and how, you, uh, how you help others through that? I think failure is critical. Uh, I think in the innovation work, if you haven't failed, that's when you haven't tried hard enough. Mm. Uh, but I really think failure is uh, a way to learn. So it's like prototyping. It should be built into the process. Some, some ideas that you come up, they might not be good. Some uh, solution that you want to test, they'll fail. And, and if you, the idea is to have it, embrace it, and find ways to fail early and failing to learn. So it doesn't become this big project that we work for two and a half years and then discover we fail. Um, mm. And uh, that's really what I encourage the team to do is to embrace failure as really a way of learning, but it's, it's connected to prototyping, do it early and cheaply and uh, do it again and again. Uh, and um, sometimes it's hard with a corporate culture where everything has been to be perfect. So there is a tension there. And when uh, you know a team fails, there's culture that, uh, would accept it than their culture that won't. And I usually talk to the, the whoever's, you know, working with uh, VP or, or director and say that, you know, if you have to accept failure. So if somebody come to you and say, I had this idea and it didn't work, what are you going to do? And uh, if the answer is you're going to be fired or demoted, I'm like, I'm not going to work with your organization because I'm going to encourage your team to do that. And then right. if the culture is not accepting it, then it, we set up for failure. So I, I try to be really upfront about the importance of failing within some constraints, you know, uh, sure. and that's really important, but uh, being accepting of it didn't work and we learned something and that was great and we'll do better next time because of what we learn. Right. Have, have you had to then shift um, projects or or things like that because something just was either continually not working or was not working in such a way that altered the the complete uh trajectory of something uh you know i have a i had a, a tech client and it was um it was really hard because um they uh they, they wanted the training but then there was nobody i could work to create the training yeah and so that was that was a really uh, challenging project because we wanted to move it forward, but I didn't have somebody say, okay, this is the plan for the training. Is it going to work? How is it going to work for the team? Uh, you know, I was um, it was years ago before everything was virtual, but I was doing uh, virtual coaching with them. And people were, uh, I was trying to have everybody on Zoom and then have everybody in one room on Zoom. And I'm like, it's, it was terrible, you know, the, the, and I just had to adapt. And I knew it was not ideal. Uh, and, you know, as a consultant, you have to work with that constraint and, and acknowledging sure. something we're working and something we're not working so well. And then yeah, it's like, absolutely. what else can we do? You know, then we go back. Right. It's like, this is not working so well. What else can we do? Yeah, that, that constant, um, that recognition of, hey, it, it doesn't mean that we just stop. It doesn't mean that we just give up. Like there is something here and we have structure to make it work. So how do we make it work? Um, because this isn't working. So we need to potentially try something else. Yes. It's, um, you know, I do improv. And uh, this is really the end. You know, you can do this and that. Yes. And, and so that, that kind of fluidity of not saying it's yes or no, but it's an and. 
and try yeah. to have that uh, in my work and kind of in our personal approach to life. Yeah, I think that's an excellent approach and like something that I think all of us could learn. Uh, I, I really love that. Um, is there a type of company that you haven't worked with that you are interested in seeing what you could do with them? So I have done work, but my goal uh, would be to do more work in the uh, nonprofit and social entrepreneurship okay. because uh, I feel I have gift for the world and I want them to have impact. And yeah. so this is kind of what I, I'm, I'm putting out to the universe is that I would like to do more of what I do uh, in, in uh, organization that himself have an impact in the world uh, and just more than just a corporation. Yeah, something that that is really their their mission and their vision is 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 that what they're giving back to the world and um, and how they can improve it. And I, I have done some work with non non for profit and and sometimes yeah. uh, the people uh, there I love them they're really mm -hmm. dedicated uh, and sometimes they're overwhelmed by the having to do and the, the mission and so I feel like having somebody from the outside that can really help them be more yeah. powerful in what they, they want to do uh, and their impact uh, is really important. So that's, that's why I want, I want to do more of. Well, that's great. I think putting it out into the world, I think, you know, it'll, it'll get there for sure. I'm a big believer in that. So that, that's awesome. Um, you mentioned kind of slightly virtual engagement, but I'm curious in general, how did the pandemic shift kind of your approach to, to your business and your business model and, and how you were working with, with clients? So it did because most of my work was in person. Yeah. And so I had to, uh, we learn, we tool and look at how might I do it uh, virtually. And I think, uh, I think it's really uh, working well and it can be really powerful. So, uh, so my training, I moved to, you know, Zoom uh, and by using, you know, breakup room and uh, teamwork and things like that, you can get um, really, um, high level of experiential learning because I'm, I'm not a talker. I don't want to lecture people and especially yeah. on Zoom, you know, people are going to be out doing something else. So uh, really learning on how do you engage people in the virtual world and the way to do it is having kind of a fast pace. You know, I might say something for five, 10 minute max and then have, you know, pair discussion, um, small group discussion, uh, chat box, uh, uh, Paul, anything that really forced you to be fully engaged and present. And I, I say I've been really successful. And then the other piece is for uh, more when I facilitate uh, projects or meetings is learning to use whiteboards because I think those are powerful instruments if you know how to use them. And I, uh, my experience is very few companies have been using them because hmm. you have a bunch of meetings when people talk. And that's really hard. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, people can't stand another Zoom meeting. But if you have a whiteboard, if you use post-its and everybody can be engaged. So you can do, I can do all my work, but for example, an ideation session, you know, you write the question and then you give everybody five minutes to write post-its and then you can cluster them. And then you can discuss the result in small group and have the whole group working together or small group in different Zoom room. And uh, that is really powerful. And the nice thing with a whiteboard is, is stay after the meeting. So you can also be asynchronous. Okay, you have this idea for that hour of meeting we had together, but for the next three days, add some more ideas. And then when we come back, we can take it from there, et cetera. Or if it's an action plan, what are all the things we might be, want, be willing to do? And we do some it together and we do something asynchronous. 
And uh, that is really great. And it's all visually in one place and people can look at it at a different time. So I think that can be actually really powerful and in a way better than in person because it, it's there for, for, it stay there and it can be done over time uh, in a much easier way than I used to do flip charts and post-its, but then you have to mm -hmm. roll them over the conference room and then they're not visible anymore. So the, right. the virtual whiteboard can be a great uh, tool. Yeah, absolutely. I think we had an experience with that um, with with my institution, um, maybe like two months into the pandemic. And that was, it really was eye opening for me because so many more people participated. So, you know, because what you're also talking about is sometimes you get in those big conference rooms, that means that everybody has to get up and then go write on something or you have to put it, you know, on separate sides of the room, so no one can see it. And, uh, and like you said, and then you what do you do with it afterwards versus it just gets to stay there and be, you know, uh, kind of documented for, <laughs> for all of time for, for lack of a better term. And then the other thing is uh, that I've realized is, I mean, when you go on, on uh, virtual is, you know, I used to do three hour session or two day session, nothing like that. It doesn't have to be that way. We can do, an hour and a half, and then a week later, we do an hour and a half. And all that time is actually beneficial because it's incubation time. It's, tough, yeah. it's, it's time for us to think about it and digest it even unconsciously. And so using time that way and, and kind of thinking about how you built training and programs that really uh, use the time to a benefit and not having to cram so many things in, in, a, in, a, in a day or two. So I, I actually like this, and I think it can be really powerful if you know how to use it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. From your from your point of view, um, have, do you feel that most people, most companies, being forced to kind of technology only, not having an in person, do do you think that that has uh, increased or uh, yeah, I guess I'll just leave it there. Has that increased the need for companies to figure out how to work together, or or is it? you know, just a, just a different type of working together? Well, I think uh, the fact that we might not know people as well and we don't have the discussion at the coffee machine or whatever yeah. uh, means that we need to uh, understand each other better in a different way. And it has to be organized because the, the, you know, the random encounters don't happen anymore. And so that's right. why I think the work I'm doing, for example, with Foresight can really help. Uh, when you have remote team. And that was true even before the pandemic. I work with remote sure. team because not that person that is by themselves in other part of the country, you understand who they are and how to work with them better instead of just being so uh, transactional, which Zoom tend to be really transactional. And then you miss that who they are and how do they think and what, what's their process and, and how can we collaborate better. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that's that's been really difficult to, to go back again to, to my experience. It's been really difficult for our team because we've had uh, two thirds of our team started after we went virtual. And so one of the things that we've talked about that we're getting ready to go back to by the when this recording is happening, we're getting ready to go back to uh, in person uh, in about two weeks. And one the first the first week we're there, we've put together a retreat where we just need to be together and learn who who each other are because it, it's really hard to be a team if you don't have some sort of connection, whether that's personal or professional, to 
these people that you're working with. Yeah, and, and we're all human, so uh, yeah. the, the personal is important. I mean, it's how we interact with each other. And, you know, we have to trust people we work with. We have to like people we work with, you know, like them enough and understand where they're coming from. And the day they come yeah. and they're super frustrated, understand that has nothing to do with us maybe, but maybe they have a right. family issue or whatever. And, and you need to build that. That's how we work as humans. So I think that's really important to, to build those relationships whether they're in person or virtually, but to create right. that, knowing that person at the personal, you know, their heart, yeah. not only their mind. Yeah, absolutely. On that note, I'm wondering from, you know, we've talked about the the need for community and, and doing things together. I'm curious from, from your own life, what is, what does your community look like? What does your support system look like? What, how, and how does that kind of play into kind of helping you through, you know, doing all of this? Yeah, uh, it's interesting, especially with the pandemic. It's asked. It's a really great question. Say, what? Are, who are your community? And you know, I have kids, and I was lucky to have two of my kids uh, with me uh, for this past year and a half. And uh, two teenagers, and we're getting along. So I'm really lucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. And uh, that that was uh, that was really special. And that's one of the things I'm grateful for, in a way, is to have a chance to be there with them. And also not being by myself. Uh, yeah. And then uh, I have my, I do Pilates, so I have my Pilates community where we moved everything virtual. But it's kind of the we have the lesson. It's live lesson. It's always the same people showing up. So we have uh, that we have that community. Uh, as I say, I was doing improv, and we moved to Zoom, and it's been working really well. So I have a group right. of uh, eight performer that we are we are do, we are meeting once a week and. Uh, and having show on Zoom once in a while, and so that's, that's been cool. really uh, that's been really great. And then um, you know, friends, uh, you know, the, it's it's interesting because at the beginning we had a lot of things ongoing, like coffee and checkup, and then over time it's like also too much because everybody's on Zoom all day, so you kind of sure. have to to balance this. But I'm lucky mm-hmm. because I'm in California. And so it's easy to, uh, to go out. So I was able, even during the pandemic, you know, go for a hike with people was sure. the one thing you could do. So that was my kind of like getting out of my house. Uh, and it really was helpful. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I, I totally understand the kind of, they, they call it the Zoom fatigue, right? And I think if you, if that's how you're interacting with also your personal life and your friends, it's, yeah, I've seen, I've stared at a screen all day and then I do want to hang out with you. But if this is the only way we can do that, that. That makes it yeah, I've done hard. a lot of phone call actually. I yeah, found oh, that sure. phone call was yeah. a better option when you've been on Zoom all day because you don't have to have a watch that the box. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, you talked about this just a little bit, but I'm curious um, how improv has kind of helped you as a facilitator and as a presenter. Uh, so I think there's two levels, the personal and then with a the group. Uh, the personal level is, is really, no, I'm joking uh, and I'm not joking. I say, uh, you know, I'm, when I prepare a session, I'm very, very specific. I have everything by the minute, you know, what's happened. Mm-hmm. So I over plan, but then I improvise because yeah. things don't work. That exercise takes longer. That person has a great question. So it's kind of that fluidity of planning, but also be okay with whatever is thrown at you. And, yeah. and, and I think that's uh, been really helpful. And then uh, also I use some of the improv exercise with the groups. So it's been a great kind of a warm up or to illustrate yeah. uh, some principle. Uh, I do a little uh, um, 
info of games and, and people like it. And I think it's a great way also to get to know each other and illustrate the concept of creativity and everything goes. And so we do silly games and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, from what you're saying, I mean, it sounds so applicable to any type of group dynamic is, is like, because those are skills for you to work in a group together and you have to in projects you have to improvise so the idea that you could just take kind of the fundamentals from that and and just plug it in basically is that makes a lot of sense to me i think one of the biggest challenges we have those we're talking about the judgment the self-judgment so in groups we don't talk we have to double check can i say this idea is it acceptable in this culture is that person's going to react to it and so in improv you have to say whatever comes to your mind because you have no yeah. time. And there's something really um, powerful by learning that, you know, assuming the environment is safe, that, you know, I can say the first thing from my mind doesn't have to be right. It doesn't have to be that anybody has to embrace this idea, but there also might be the nugget of something that somebody else can pick it up on it and make it bigger or make it more interesting or modify it or whatever. And so trusting that whatever you're saying is okay and might yeah. actually inspire others it's a really powerful concept. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as we're winding down here, that was a quick, uh, a quick trip through. But uh, as we're winding down, I just have a couple last questions. The first is, if you just had to boil down, you know, to some some fairly simple advice for our listeners for how they can find bliss through innovation, through creativity, what would your recommendation be for them to to be able to find that? Uh, I mean, the first thing is go back to dynamic balance. So whenever you're stuck, just put a piece of paper in that what might be all the, always start with a question. If you want to come up with idea, always start with a question because the brain doesn't like questions. The brain want to answer a question. If you say, I wish I were rich, nothing will happen. But you say, what might be all the ways for me to make a million dollars? You might not make a million dollars, but at least you have some idea that might get you down the way. So ask a question and then write everything down, suspend your judgment. And at least you'll see that there may be more than one or two things. Uh, so that's the first thing is really use that suspend judgment, go for quantity and just get things out on a piece of paper, whiteboard, whatever works for you. Um, ask other people, you know, as well. Uh, and, uh, and really think about the power of, uh, it's not, there is more than two options. There's, always almost always more than two options then we get stuck in like i can only do this or this i can stay in my right. job or leave that job yes maybe and maybe you can negotiate that job to work part-time and try watch something else you want to do actually i had this discussion years ago with a friend and she was like i like this new job offer but it's five days a week and i want to break and i'm like why don't you see if they would accept four days a week and they did yeah you know but she didn't even think about it <laughs> right because we've been conditioned, right? It has to be these very specific ways. Yeah. And, and that innovation, again, comes out like, and that creativity, it's, it's looking at every perspective there is and saying, yeah. we like know we can find 360 one. Image. Yeah. Like do a 360, a 360 about yeah. the problem. Because one of the things really important is we often make assumption about the problem. So right. I have to solve this problem. But there might be another set of problems and solving another one might solve this one or might be a better one to solve. So look at 360 on the problem, get information, get questions. Look at 360 on all the idea that can happen. Look at all the way you can make this happen. Uh, and then, you know, try a bunch of things. Yeah, absolutely. 
So our last question is just, what would you like to promote? Um, so, um, so my business is, uh, it's called strategic insights. My website is www.strategicinsights.biz and you'll find it in the show notes. And, uh, anybody that is interested in talking to me that need helps with innovation, I'll be glad to have a, um, consultation. Um, so just a free consultation, 20 minutes, contact me. And if you're curious, is also a quiz that I have um, if you are in corporate or small company and you want to think about you, uh, your environment and how innovative is your environment, I have a little uh, nine question quiz. Yeah, and we'll make sure all of that gets in the show notes as well. A lot of different ways to connect with Ellen as well. So uh, thank you so much. Uh, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you. And we really appreciate you sharing your expertise. And uh, I feel really energized and I feel uh, I feel really good about you know, kind of thinking about things in a new perspective. And I know our listeners will too, but I'm just so grateful that we were, uh, we were able to talk today. Well, thank you so much. I love a uh, great conversation and it's been really uh, enjoyable and lovely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Ellen. And uh, we'll see you all next time on What's Your Bliss. Thank you, Thomas. You can find What's Your Bliss at anythingbutcredible.com and on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Google, and Stitcher. Please follow on Twitter and Instagram at YourBlissPod and like What's Your Bliss on Facebook. If you have any questions for me or if you'd like to be a guest or advertise on the podcast, please email me at YourBlissPodcast at gmail.com. Please check out AnythingButCredible.com to find all the additional awesome content and podcasts including Offended, Movie Merge, Going Off Topic, and of course the Anything But Credible podcast. Mm-hmm.